Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Isaiah chapter 43, we will begin again reading in verse 1 and read through verse 14. This is part B of last week's sermon, How Great Thou Art. We're in Isaiah 43. It would probably be a a great study sometime to go through the book of Isaiah. It's a rather complicated book. It covers a lot of time that uh, is longer than Isaiah would have lived. But that's how prophecy works. God can speak through prophets to prophesy about times that they will never see, but God gives them his truth about those days, and we are in one of those sections now. Isaiah is writing 700, almost 800 years before the coming of Christ, but yet he is giving a word of encouragement here to those who will one day be in captivity. Listen to what he says. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, Since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. And I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. And I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears, and the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. But who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things. Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, this is true, or it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed. 
That, that is so conclusive and so important. Oh, there's all kind of talk about, well, were there other gods? And is God our God that we serve? Is he just first among others? Is he the best? Is he the, the most powerful of all the gods in the world? And we know that in the Old Testament that there was a lot of, of, of uh, polytheism. People believed in multiple gods, but I love the way God just clears it up. He says, understand that I am he, and before me was no God formed. And he clears up another thing, and there will be none after me. I, even I, I am the Lord. And there is, here's another truth, there is no Savior besides me. No matter how well-meaning, no matter how difficult it might be to wrap our minds around that people in parts of the world who don't have churches next door, they may not be hearing the gospel, he says, I can tell you there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am he. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Finally, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. We talked about already in last week's message about how great God is. We talked about the fact that He is a creating God, that He can take nothing and make something out of it. We talked about the language of the first chapter of the book of the Bible, that God took nothing and made everything. And what a powerful truth for us when we feel we have nothing or accomplished nothing or maybe because of bad decision, it's decisions, it has come to nothing. God says, bring me the nothing and I can do things with it you wouldn't imagine. He's also a covenant God. He kept our end of the covenant. He's always kept his he has kept ours so that we could have a relationship with him. He is sovereign. We talked about that. There, there's no need to worry about maybe uh, something's going to happen and I won't be his child anymore. We focused on that facet of his sovereignty. He says, no, I chose you before eternity or in eternity, before the world even began. I chose you. And, and, and so there's no losing anything. And when we talk about maybe failing and, and, and losing our salvation, it's a sign that we have totally misunderstood the whole process that God has laid before us. He is also a redeeming God. We stopped there last week. He says, you are mine, Israel. You belong to me. When you cut up and somebody says, whose kid is that? We've all been there, have we not? When you look around and think, boy, somebody ought to do, oh, okay. 
God says, Israel, you are mine. I've redeemed you. I've taken responsibility for you. You owe debts you couldn't pay. I've assumed responsibility for those. You have deficits that that, that, that you can't meet, and I'm going to meet them for you. I'm going to legally represent you and as Boaz represented Ruth, and we talked about that story. I'd love for us to continue on now. He is also, number five, a saving God. He says, For I am the Lord your God, verse 3, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, and there is no Savior besides me. This time of the year, we love reading those words. I do so many times. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, I used to do something that, because when I read the chapter of Luke 2, I would always kind of get a chill bump. I don't know why. It was just, when we read it at church, it just seemed to hit a nerve with me. Now I'm just a kid, okay? And, but I would read it sometimes just to see if the chill bump came back because the words are so awesome. The words are so awesome. But in Luke 2, verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid for I bring you, Yuan Galizzo, I bring you good news. That's the gospel. I bring you the gospel. That's what he's saying. I bring you the gospel of great joy which shall be to all people for today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord? That's the gospel. I bring you a Savior. That was our greatest need. Our greatest need and it cost God the greatest price and and when he sends Christ, he is the anointed one of God. He is God incarnate in flesh. He is the greatest revelation of God. And then when he says, and I am Lord, I, I know there are tyrants that have ruled you before, but I tell you, forget them, I am Lord. That's his greatest declaration. That is, that is wonderful news. And and sometimes I think maybe people wonder, well, why, what's the big deal about Christmas? And, and I know it's a holiday for many people, and that's about it. But, but for you and I as believers, we have to remember why these passages bring the chill bumps. The almighty, eternal, awesome God, creator of the universe, is about to step in to time. And he is coming into this world. And you don't just come into this world as almighty God. This, this little tiny speck of his being that he has created here. You, you just don't do that if you're the creator God without kind of making a big hole. And so as quietly as he could, he wound up in, in Bethlehem. And, and they laid him as a little baby in a manger. But Boy, as quiet as all of that seemed, there was still a ruckus that broke out before daylight. Shepherds were watching in the field, and, and wise men later would come to worship him as a child. I love it when the wise men came to Herod's house and knocked on the door and said, uh, hey, uh, we are looking for the one who was born king of the Jews, not elected, not not." Not like you, Herod, uh, I'm paraphrasing, 
but, but not like you. You bought your job. You basically paid the Roman Empire to make you a vassal ruler in a very small section of the world. Now, we want to know where is the one who was not elected or appointed, but he was born king of the Jews. We'd like to meet him. I'm sure that hit Herod like a ball bat. I thought I was king of the Jews. You're not born king of the Jews, Herod. Only one is. So I can tell you he is our Savior. I'd say this and move on. I I've never thought, I'd have never thought years ago that the uniqueness of Christ, and by that I mean that he is the only Savior, that there is not another way to have a relationship with God. That is what we call the uniqueness of Christ. There was a time I would have never believed that that would have been questioned at least among Baptists and in Baptist churches. But I can tell you, there are lots of varieties of Baptist churches. Make sure you remember that. And there are a lot of churches that they revere Jesus Christ as being a Savior that you can turn to, but not the Savior As a matter of fact, some of them don't even consider him the Savior. They consider him a great example. He is someone to whom we can look up to, someone we can respect, one uh, uh, to whom we should pattern or about whom we should pattern our lives and all of that. But as far as really being the Savior, the only way that we can have a relationship with God I am afraid they abandoned that idea years ago, and many of them have gone public with it in recent decades. I just read this week that in Europe, about 40% of people still believe in God. 40% even believe there is a God, let alone a Savior. And it's worse as you go further into Eastern Europe. It's interesting, though, Most of the eastern former communist countries, it's really bad there, really a low amount. Canada's the same way. Australia is the same way. But when you get to Russia, it is amazing that the gospel is growing in Russia. Now, my theory on it, for what it's worth, uh, is I believe that Russia, due to the tyrants that have led it and, and to the difficulties that that they face just in their environment and, and the governments that they've had to deal with. I believe that a lot of the Russian people are further along down that road of desperation. And I believe that a lot of them are ripe for the gospel. They're ready to turn to someone other than human beings who say they know the way when they're clueless and lost and they have left that place destitute. A lot of people in our world, I can tell you, that Jesus Christ, he's, and I say our world, what kills me, it's in our churches. He's he's a way, but there's no way that all the Muslims in the world are going to go to hell unless they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. You know why that's true for people? Because they feel like it is. They feel like it is. Matter of fact, in our world, I think we have what I would call the new fundamentalist. 
When I grew up, the fundamentalists were those that they believed certain things, and if you didn't believe like them, then they didn't want to go to church with you, and they kind of ran you off. And, and, and they were dead right, and you couldn't tell them any different. And that's exactly how they were, and how they saw it was how it was, and you couldn't change their mind. No way in the world. We have a new fundamentalist nowadays. And instead of being diehard conservative, many of them have become very progressive and liberal. They too have decided they can't attend church with those who don't see things the way they do. And they think people who believe that Jesus is unique and the only Savior of the world, that we're being narrow, that we're being unmerciful, that we're being unloving. They're the new fundamentalists. They would hate that term, but that's exactly what it is. I, I want to close this point. I've been singing this song all week. Blessed assurance. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. I, I never understood that growing up as a kid. I thought blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. But you got to remember, I heard a lot of songs in church growing up as a kid. You remember that song, He Whispers Sweet Peace? You remember it, don't you, George? Don't know if he does or not. I can't see his head. Oh, yeah. He's scared I'm going to have him sing it. He whispers sweet peace. Do you know, as a kid, I thought they were saying, he whispers sweet peas. And I thought, boy, I hate sweet peas. Why are they singing the sweet peas song? Really? Finally figured it out. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. I grew up thinking that Jesus belongs to me. That's the blessed assurance. No. Blessed assurance is a thought that hangs in the air. When Fanny Crosby wrote these words, she says, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Man, you can't beat that. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. If blessed assurance, the stock market's mine, you probably need some medication this morning. If blessed assurance, Joe Biden is mine, or blessed assurance, Donald Trump is mine. Or blessed assurance, uh, just hope for the future is mine. Or blessed assurance, even my children are, are mine. I can tell you as sacred and as sweet and wonderful as your children may be, if that's where your assurance comes from, it comes from the wrong place because I can promise you this time tomorrow, we only have that one thing that we know for certain that we will have. This time tomorrow, the only thing we can know for certain that we will have is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. And if you think Fanny Crosby wrote stuff like that because she really had the world by the tail and just had an awesome life, I can tell you that's not the case. 
She was blinded because of a doctor's mistake when she was a very young girl and had every reason in the world to grow up feeling bitter, but she didn't because blessed assurance, she said, Jesus is mine. And she wrote 8,000 plus hymns in her life telling the world, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Jesus is mine. He's a creating God, covenant God, sovereign, redeeming, saving. Number six, he's a holy God. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He is a holy God. We talked about the word before, but it, it's, it's a word our society knows so little about. We think of holy as being some kind of religious term. Holy means that God is different than anything else. It is, in English, we are not allowed to say very unique. So don't, don't let us catch you doing that. Unique will not take a modifier. But I'm going to try to get away with it. Because God is very unique. Oh, that felt freeing. Ha. Huh. I've broken out of the confines of social mores this morning. I've slain the language like a dragon. Oh, I've been doing that for years. He's very unique. There is nothing about him that's like anything else. That's why that man... When we talk about him being a holy God, when he's in this place, this is a holy place. When God does a work, it's a holy work. When we give something to God, it is a holy offering. And when he comes to live inside of us, we become holy. And you don't get him to come and live inside of you, by the way, by working really hard on your holiness. No, you are holy because he lives inside of you. That's how all of that takes place. We've almost lost our sense of holiness. Remember years ago, I burned my eyes really badly doing some welding. I did all kinds of different work years ago. And uh, I remember going to the ER and the doctor put these little drops in my eyes. And I had hurt till way into the night. And I finally decided I've got to go to the ER and get some relief. I'd been there before and knew the rodeo well. Here come the drops. The drops go in. Your eyes feel like for a split second that he put a torch in them. But then it suddenly... All the pain is gone. And you want to marry him. It's the best you felt in eight hours. And I remember the first time he gave me those drops, I said, man, I want some of those. Prescribe them. Write me a prescription. There's a bottle of that going in my toolbox. I can tell you that now. <laughs> he said, nope, you're not getting this. He said, this is so powerful and so numbing he said, if you got something in your eye and put this in there, you could destroy your eye because you would never feel the pain. You would never feel it cutting your eye. And you could totally blind yourself. And we're not allowed outside of the hospital to use a medication like this. I, I think that's kind of what happened to our conscience 
in our world today. It used to be that certain things caused us shame, but we seem to be getting over that. We don't feel that cut anymore. When we see certain things that just indicate that our society is circling the drain, it really used to bother us, but but now we've kind of gotten used to it. And, and the world can do that because they're not holy. But you and I are supposed to be like God. You and I are supposed to feel that cut, feel that tear, feel that tinge and know that that is wrong. We should feel in our heart that that is not representative of God's design. And, and, and we ought to be keenly aware of those kinds of things. We didn't invent the idea, though. If you look back at Adam and Eve, boy, they felt shame. And they hid from God. Go one more chapter over. Cain felt no shame. Cain had already advanced to arrogance. Arrogance. Even when God warned him to his face, he defied God. And still, defiantly asked God to protect his sorry life, feeling no sorrow or pain. His heart had grown numb, and he killed his own brother. Well, the creating God, covenant, sovereign, redeeming, saving, holy, he is a loving God. He's a loving God, number seven. He says, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. I love you. Boy, we were talking about it in staff this week. Pastor Deese was teaching us Hebrew uh, in the staff meeting. And uh, he really was kind of. But we were talking about the Hebrew and how literal the language is. And we're doing a study on discipleship and how sometimes we need to think more like the Hebrews. To, to, and, and it's just it's a, it's a great study that we're doing. But I was, we were thinking about words in the Hebrew. Hebrew people didn't deal a lot with the abstract. They dealt with literal things. They didn't say God is solid and unmovable. They said God is my rock. They would say things like, God is my, he's my mountain. They had a word for mercy and love. Rakim is the word, and it's the word for womb, the womb of a mother. Boy, what a word for love. What a word for loving mercy. And then the Greek helps us here. I want you to listen to this. I know we've covered some of this before, but... The Greek helps us to understand how God loves. There's four words in the Greek for love. The first one we'll talk about is stergo. It's just a family kind of love, and it's a powerful love. It's the love you have for your children, for your wife, for family members. And it really doesn't occur in the Greek New Testament except in the negative. When Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 that in the last days people will become unloving. That word unloving is ostergos. Ah means not loving. And stergos is their own families. Paul says in the last days, people that folks should love, they won't be able to. 
They'll become unloving even to them. And think about our society, children killing parents, parents killing children, families torn apart like that. It's incredible what we see in our world. But Sturgo is that family type of love, somewhat of an obligation. Phileo or philos is that, that camaraderie kind of love. Uh, Philadelphia, Adel Foster's brother, so the city of Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love. I wouldn't go up there and ask around about that, though. But philos is a kind of love. It's, it's reciprocation there. It's sort of like when, when um, I don't know if he's, yeah, I see him sitting back there. I thought about you, Brother James Killian. Me and old James, we can sit around and we can talk about deer we've shot and fish we've caught. And boy, I'm telling you, they get bigger every time we talk to each other. But we can just have the best conversation. I love talking to him. One reason I love talking to him, I just want to share this with you, is he enunciates his words well and he talks slowly and I can hear him. Now, he doesn't talk loudly, but he talks slowly and I can understand him. We can talk forever, but we're both rednecks, so we got a commonality there, and we can understand each other. I love talking to him like that. There are so many others of you. I could just sit down with you, and, and, and we could talk about whatever. It may not have anything to do with that. You may not fish or hunt or do any of those things, but there's a camaraderie there that we share together. That's a philos kind of love. And then there's an eros, and that is a love that is attractive. It, um, it, it, it is a love that, that something has attracted you and, and you feel drawn toward it. And, and there's two things that really draws out eros, or, and we do get our word erotic from it, but pretty and pity are two things that will make you love something with uh, this eros or erotic kind of love. If someone's really, really pretty, uh, boy, really handsome, you might be drawn to them. I've often uh, been afraid to even ask Loretta, did, did she really love me when she first saw me, or, or was it just how I looked? I may not ask her that. You can also be drawn by other things. It's not real love in the sense of godly, divine kind of love, but pity may strike your heart. It may make you make dumb decisions and do things that you feel like are, are good for a person and they're bad for the person. They just made you feel good. It's an erotic, drawing kind of love. And then there is agape, and that is the pure kind of love. Nothing about us. And that's the kind of love that God had for us. Nothing about us attracted God to us. We weren't good, and God decided to take the top good ones in the heap and use them. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were not attractive. We had no philos in common with God. We were as far from Him as possibly we could be. And we were not part of the family before we, uh, as far as Sturgo is concerned, before we ever became His children, uh, He 
loved us. Agape is a love, not just, it's not just a more intense love, it's a unique kind of love. It is a decision to love. Agape is the love you have when you don't feel like loving. It's a choice to love. It's the only kind of love I think that can make a marriage work. You have to choose to love. I have people say to me sometimes, well, I don't know, I just, I just don't love them anymore. Now, I actually ask sometimes, well, when did you decide to quit loving them? It it's a, throws them for a little loop. Because they never thought about, I decided to quit loving them? No. It just, the, the, the relationship wasn't, you know, it wasn't romantic and I didn't have that feeling anymore. And, you know, when he kissed me, I didn't, you know, get dizzy or whatever. And I don't know, it just, uh, she doesn't understand me. And there's a girl at work, she listens to me all the time. And I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure I'm really mixed up, but I just don't. I love, I love this one. I love her, but I'm not in love with her. So misunderstood. Agape love is when you decide to love. You decide to love. You know, it's interesting. God never, Jesus never taught us tolerance. He taught us love. Don't tolerate people. Love them. Love them. If your child comes home and says, you know, I know I'm born male, but I want to be female, you don't need to tolerate that child. That'll be more about you. Love that child. Love that child. Love that child. That child needs love, not toleration. It would be the same if the doctor told you your child had a brain tumor. You are not going to tolerate that. You are going to do something about it. You're going to get involved. You're going to get the experts. You're going to talk to everybody you can. You'll spend every dime you have loving that child because you refuse to tolerate something that is killing your child. A lack of agape love. I'm afraid it's why a lot of children can't stay out of prison and why a lot of others are going to die and go to hell. We have to love people more than accepting and tolerating them. I'm going to move to the last point. He's a creating, covenant, sovereign, redeeming, saving, holy, loving. He is a present God. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And though through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. And nor will the flame burn you. These are all supernatural responses to difficulty. He also says, you are my witnesses, how? Well, this is how. You walk through things that would have killed someone else. It would have caused them to despair. It would have made them stop loving others. It would have left them bitter and 
They could have never processed it. But God says, you are my witnesses that when the water got high and things got tough, I was with you. I was with you. I am a present God. And you can respond that way. It was probably a year or so ago, but I won't ever forget it. It was the first time I had gone back to the hardware store where I usually get deer corn and things like that. They had heard about my accident. I know all, almost every one of them in there by, by name. Man, I'll never forget when I got finished telling them about shooting my arm and how close I came to dying and how I could feel the presence of God and how I even told God, I'm coming home, Lord. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. When I told them about how my son and my nephew stepped up to the plate and how that finally when we couldn't figure out any other way, I just climbed down the blooming tree. All of that. I remember looking at them. This is a bunch of dudes. We're dudes. Sitting around a hardware store and their eyes were full of tears because they were hearing a testimony about when the water gets high and the rivers overflow and times get dangerous. But God, he says, I am with you. Had he taken me home that day, then he was with me. But we are witnesses to that. And some of you, man, this is nothing. This is nothing. You, you buried your child. It's not supposed to happen. And I know to this day it hurts and it breaks your heart. But you still love the Lord and you still put your faith and trust in him. And blessed assurance, Jesus is yours. That's how we witness to the world. Paul says, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice. This is guys in jail, by the way. Rejoice. For the Lord is at hand. He's here. He's with you. My life verse for many years is Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. When you go out to battle, not if, and you see horses and chariots and a people greater than you. Do not be afraid. For I, the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, I am with you. I am with you. Man. How great he is. It's an awesome God. Let's pray. Lord, you are our assurance. You are the one, Lord, to whom we look. We really have nowhere else to go, but God, you know how we as human beings can make excuses and invent crutches to lean upon. And Lord, sometimes we forget. We become afraid. We become ashamed. God, I pray today 
that you would draw every child of yours in this building today. I pray, God, right now that you would speak to their heart and draw them close to you. And God, we also ask you right now, Father, touch that one that may not know you. Maybe they don't know you as their Savior, God. Lord, I pray that you convict that heart. Help them to know that they can have blessed assurance. Not like the things, Lord, they've leaned upon before, but an assurance that will never leave them and never forsake them. I pray, God, you'll also help us as a church, as we partner with so many other believers through Lottie Moon offerings and different things, God. I pray you'll help us to never forget that there's a world out there that needs to hear about you and what an awesome God you are. And you tell us that we are your witnesses, God. Sometimes, God, we don't even show up for court. Sometimes, Lord, we've marred our testimonies. Our witness, Lord, seems invalidated. I pray, God, for healing, forgiveness, restoration. Redemption. God, let us witness to the world that you are a great God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.